Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with Naomi Doddington from Consigli Construction. Naomi will be talking us through her choice to change careers from high school teacher to historic preservation and about one of her most unique projects, the Glass House at Minokin, where part of the structure will be preserved and interpreted all in glass. All that and much more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be talking with Naomi Doddington. And Naomi serves as a project manager and historic preservation specialist at Consigli Construction, which is a big name in the field of historic preservation here in the Mid-Atlantic and elsewhere. Um, But before we get to that work and talk about a pretty cool project that you're working on, um, we like to get to know folks. Um, So... What was your uh, sort of path to preservation? Where did you grow up and what got you interested in this? And then we'll maybe talk about what your first job was in the field. Sure, sure. Thank you for having me. Um, Really appreciate it. Uh, Actually, I am from Puerto Rico and uh, we moved to upstate New York when I was eight years old. So I tell people I grew up in upstate New York because that's where most of my childhood memories are from. I lived there from eight to 15 and... uh, it was a very small little town. Part of the, the SUNY system of schools was there. And that's what brought us there. Um, it was a historic area, but it wasn't really something that I kind of understood at that time frame. Um, but when I was 15, we moved to the south suburbs of Chicago. And that was my first time really encountering a big city. And I remember walking around downtown and just being just so in love with what ended up being mostly late 19th century skyscrapers. And I thought it was so neat. And so um, my parents were like, well, you should study architecture. That's what architects do is design buildings. And so I took drafting classes in high school and um, took a little bit of uh, drawing different, different areas as well, just kind of fine arts drawing as well. And uh, I, I said, you know, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to be an architect. And um, I went to college and I started architecture school and everything was about this blank sheet of paper staring up at me and no context, no boundaries. And it was just not my thing. So I took uh architectural history classes, obviously. And I love those classes. I did so well in those classes, but I didn't know the historic preservation was a thing. No one ever talked to me about it. So I really sat down and thought really hard. I was like, this is a five-year program. I'm paying for it myself. I am not happy. I need to finish my degree and get out of school. So I went over to the theater department and I said, Hi, uh, I know how to draft and I'm creative and I would like to finish my degree here. And they said, okay, come join us as a set design major. So my undergraduate degree is actually a Bachelor of Fine Arts in theater with an emphasis on set design and scenic artistry. 
but it's actually kind of a good kind of a good fit for what you ended up doing, right? Like putting things together. There's some there's some practical construction skills associated with that. Yeah, and making things work. You know, yeah. really kind of thinking outside the box and, and getting there. Um, and so I, you know, the thing about theater, and and this is what I wish parents knew that they wouldn't discourage their kids from studying theater because I think that they they say the wrong things. And I think the real the real issue with uh, being a theater person is that it's a very itinerant lifestyle, and so you end up with a nine month contract at a theater in the middle of nowhere most of the time. And then at the end of that contract, you have at least three months of unemployment. And then you may or may not have a job the next year. So it requires a lot of being willing to pick up and move. And I was just not really digging that side of things. So as I came upon my last year in school, I was like, well, I don't really want to do that professionally. But I really want to be in a creative career. So I went and I grabbed the phone book and I'm going to age myself a little bit because the phone book back then was actually about three inches thick. <laughs> I, I was going to say it through. actually just existed. Yes. And I, <laughs> I loved it. Um, our, our theater department had an old pickup truck and the seat was stuck in the furthest back position. So I would stack a couple phone books on there and on the seat and, uh, and use it to help me reach the pedals. So they're very beneficial. I don't know what I would do nowadays. Um, but I went through the phone book and I looked for photographers and I just started cold calling photographers. So a um, little bit of gumption on my side there and uh, talked to a couple different people. But everyone who did pick up the phone, I'd say, hey, I'm wondering if you're looking for uh, an apprentice. And, you know, most people are like, no, sorry, no, sorry. And I finally got a hold of one person and he said to me, well, no one's ever been able to stick with me. But if you're still interested tomorrow, call me back. Click. And I don't know if I was just naive or headstrong. I'm definitely headstrong. Um, so I called him back the next day. And my senior year of college, I actually was working on nights and weekends uh, with a wedding and events photographer. And then after that, I, um, I did that for about seven years. I had my own business. I moved to Charleston, South Carolina. And... I enjoyed it. It was fun. But then the recession of 2008 came along. And I had to really sit and examine myself deeply and say, you know, to get through a recession, you really have to fight for your business. Do I really want to fight for this business? And I said, no, I don't. And it was one of the scariest things that I had ever done. But I went ahead and shut down that business. And that's when I started teaching instead. Fascinating. So you become, you, you start teaching. And I think, you know, it's interesting. We're like, uh, I forget which episode this is, 276, 277, something like that. It depends on how they get released. Um, but, you know, we're closing in on 300 episodes of PreserveCast. And I feel like one of the interesting takeaways, and this is probably if you were interviewing anybody from any industry or a large group of people from an industry, would be that there's no one path and to that industry or to that job, and that um, it's okay to reinvent yourself several times. There's so many people. It's, I think it would be the exception to the rule, the people who are like, I was 12 years old, and I knew I had to work for Consigli Construction and be a preservationist, right? Like, that is, that's pretty rare. Um, 
and I think that that hopefully is a takeaway for someone listening who is like, well, I really love old buildings, but I can't do that because I'm fill in the blank years old and I'm already doing blank and I can't do this. So hopefully this isn't just sort of a cool look at someone's life, but also a reminder that anybody can reinvent themselves. Yeah. And I highly encourage it. I think, you know, people who get tired and are sick and are are bored and, and hate their jobs, it's like, well, might be time for a little reinvention there. Right. So how do you go from teaching to Consigli Construction? Right. So I was in an alternative certification program for people who didn't have degrees in education. But unfortunately, at the height of a recession, there's not that many openings for theater teachers, believe it or not. (laughs) And uh, South Carolina did not have a way for me to test to teach anything else. So I actually spent three years as a substitute teacher and there was a magnet school for the performing arts. And the teachers there loved me because I could sub in any department. And one of the Spanish teachers found out from Puerto Rico, native Spanish speaker, that I could teach Spanish. And she said, I'm going on maternity leave. I know you want to teach. Do you want to teach my class? And you can do all your own lesson planning and really prove to the school. So when there's a theater position open, that you are ready and able. And I said, sure, jumped at it. And there is just always a huge demand for Spanish teachers. But the thing is, there was still no hiring for a theater department uh, position and no way for me to get certified to teach Spanish other than going and getting a master's degree in Spanish. And I thought, I'm not going to get a master's degree to go back and teach at the high school level. But it did kind of tickle me. And I said, what would I go and get a master's degree in? And I'd been living in Charleston for about eight or nine years at that time. And that's when I said, I think this historic preservation thing is kind of my jam. And that would be somewhere where I would want to go and get a degree. And so that's what I did. I was 32 years old. (laughs) So talk about reinvention. Um, I put my life on hold. There were no programs at that time that were part-time or evenings and weekends. It was all full-time, two years. Uh, So I literally, I mean, I had to stop working and I just devoted myself to school for those two years. I went to the Clemson program in Charleston, South Carolina. I loved every minute of it. Um, It was the perfect place, the perfect time, the perfect season in my life for it. And... That's kind of what kind of got me started and helped me with the transition into historic preservation. And so now, um, you know, we'll fast forward to where you are now. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what Consigli Construction does. Um, And, you know, I think we we wanted to talk to Naomi because she's she's working on a pretty cool project there. Um, Pretty unique one in in terms of preservation. Um, So talk about the set design uh, applicability there. There's a little bit of that going on. Um, But, you know, for people who are curious, there's all sorts of different types of uh, shops around the country. So what is Consigli? Um, Where does it what what, uh, bucket does it fit into? When I tell people what we do at Consigli, I say we're a general contractor and construction manager. We focus on large institutional projects, energy, corporate government, academic, healthcare, and life sciences. And then my role within the DC office is that I focus exclusively on projects having to do with historic building fabric. Now, for people who are listening who aren't super familiar with the construction industry, 
Talk to us about what that role is. So do you self-perform? Do you have your own crews? Do you sub? How? Who's doing the... So you're kind of overseeing these projects and making sure that historic resources aren't destroyed. That's a big right. part of it. Uh, Definitely. Planning ahead and all that good stuff. Who's mm-hmm. doing the work of it? So that's one of the best things about working for Consiglia is that we do have a self-perform arm. And we have hundreds of people throughout the company who do different kinds of trades. So we have guys who do concrete, we have masons, we have carpenters doing finished carpentry, beautiful work. And then we also hire in subcontractors. So my role is to oversee everybody, both the guys who work directly for our company. And I say guys, um, you know, I grew up in upstate New York. It kind of is a general term for everybody. Um, So... I oversee all of the workers who work for Consigli directly uh, for our self-perform division. And I also oversee the subcontractors. And I view myself as a a liaison. You know, architects speak a different language from construction workers and speak a different language from a lot of clients, too. And so I kind of take what they say and I interpret it for the people in the field. And I take what the people in the field are telling me and I interpret it into architect speak. And that's my role really is to facilitate that and keep track of budgets and schedules and just making sure that the project runs smoothly while at the same time being very sensitive to the historic fabric. So you mentioned a whole bunch of different types of projects, and I'm sure you get involved in a lot of different types. Give people, mm-hmm. we're going to we're gonna talk about the glass house in Minokin in a little bit here, maybe after we take our break. But um, talk to us about some of the projects that you've worked on, give people sort of a scale and a taste for the the diversity and variety of what you've touched while at Consigli. And how long, I don't know if we, we mentioned that, how long have you been there? Sure. So I came to Consigli six years ago in August. And I, I mean, I'm just so fortunate to be in the mid-Atlantic. Uh, we have offices throughout the, the East Coast, up in the Boston and Maine, down in the Caribbean and North Carolina, but I am just so fortunate to be here in in the D.C. area. I have had a chance to work on projects from the U.S. Capitol building at Olmstead Terrace. I've never um, heard of it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small little house with a dome on top. Nice. And uh, I've also gotten to work. Uh, my most recent project was actually at uh, the D.C. Police Memorial. Oh, wow. Um, downtown and a, a memorial for officers who have fallen in the line of duty. I've also gotten to work with the National Park Service at Meridian Hill Park. We did some restoration of J.J. Early exposed aggregate concrete work up there. Um, and I even got to do a project also with the Park Service at the Netherlands Carillon, which is over next to Arlington Cemetery. And that was my first opportunity to restore a musical instrument. Interesting. Yeah. Sort of like an architectural musical instrument. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty cool. So you've touched a wide variety of things. Why don't we take a quick break, come back, talk about this pretty exceptional project that you're working on. Um, and uh, we'll talk about sort of what's next for you and all those good things. And we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, 
The campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're thrilled today to be joined by Naomi Doddington, who is a project manager uh, and historic preservation specialist at Consigli Construction. So we were talking about her circuitous and fun uh, uh, way of falling into this career and sort of the interesting things she just, she's done along the way uh, and this spirit of reinvention, which is very cool. Um, and uh, we also talked sort of about how Consigli works and all the different things that they've done. And she's obviously worked in anything from the Capitol Dome um, uh, down to a Carillion. And now we're going to be talking a little bit about another cool project um, that has you know impressed a lot of people and is doing some cool things. And this is the Glass House Project at Minokin in Virginia. So talk to us about, like, for somebody who doesn't know anything about it, which I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who are like, I don't know what that is. Uh, you know, yeah. lis listeners all over the world. Um, what is, where is it? What is it? And then we'll kind of get into what you're doing. Right. So Minokin Plantation is in the rural part of Virginia, and it was the ancestral home of Francis Lightfoot Lee who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation. It is a very typical Georgian four-square brick and stone house. Uh, they used the local stone and something interesting is that no one knows exactly where the quarry was for the local stone. So very limited in so far as restoration work goes because we have what we have and that's it. The house was obviously a plantation. There were enslaved people on the property. Uh, it continued as a plantation all the way into the 1870s. Uh, and then it was served as a family home into the 1940s. In the 1960s, the property had been abandoned and a tree fell through the roof. And as you know, water is the enemy. And so basically between the 1960s and the early 2000s, the house continued to deteriorate more and more. Now, in the 1960s, it probably was the most intact 18th century interior in all of this region. Uh, so when the tree fell through the roof, they salvaged a lot of this interior, and it kind of ended up scattering to the four winds. So Colonial Williamsburg has some pieces and some pieces have ended up in different collections, and eventually parts of it were stored in a peanut barn. And yeah. and then um, in the early 2000s, the last owner was convinced to sell it to a foundation, a private foundation uh, made up of preservationists as well as descendants of the different people who had something to do with the plantation, both those who had been owners on the plantation as well as descendants of the people who had been enslaved on the property. And they have been working to stabilize the ruins and to interpret the site and to bring back an understanding of the house to allow further interpretation of all the lives that touched that place. And part of that is 
by building what is called, affectionately known as the glass house. So over the years, different people had broken in and basically picked over the ruins and stones have gone missing. And because we don't know where the quarry was and there's not much of the stone in use anywhere else in the area, there is no more source for getting new stone. So what we have is what we have. And part of the first phase of the project that we've completed was to go and find the stones Uh, Some of it was stored in the woods. Some of it was neatly organized in a system that had long been forgotten. Tags, beautiful tags, no one knew what they meant. Uh, So we sorted, we organized. There were these gigantic cartoons of the different elevations uh, from the HAB survey that happened in the 1940s. And so they printed them out onto some kind of, I don't know, maybe billboard plastic stuff. And so our masons were able to lay their pieces of stone right on the cartoons and say, yes, we've got enough to make this windowsill or no, we're going to need to find a piece that's larger from somewhere else to recarve to make it here. And so the intention is to stabilize the southwest and the northeast corners, which are the most intact. And then for the voids, the, the pieces that are missing, they will be replicated not in a direct manner, but by using glass. And that will give people, visitors, a sense of the volume of this space while also preserving the fact that it is a ruins. Which is really, this is unique, right? Like, I'm In the United it, States, it's actually United really States. rather unique. It's is a it, very European kind of way of approaching preservation. It is controversial, I will say that. But when you think about what it is, you know, this is a place, instead of doing the typical house museum where we're, you know, we're celebrating the glory of these people who, you know, they kept other people in bondage. It's it's not the lovely, happy story that we would like to sell. It's really, I mean, it's, it's just like a very artistic statement to be like, look, this is this is the ruins. Um I don't know. It's just so interesting to me, the juxtaposition of the, of the two. Well, yeah, uh, I think the juxtaposition of the materials is also, for me, I, I think it's great. I think it's very cool. And I think it's an interesting way. We have a lot of historic homes. We don't need a, a, a recreation of one. So yeah. this allows the historic fabric to speak and the new fabric to speak separately. Yeah. For some people, though, seeing those two materials t- side by side is the jarring part, right? Where they're yeah. sort of purists and they don't they don't want to see those two things. It's like having yeah. your it's like ha- like have some people like having the the syrup touch their bacon and some people don't. It's just, right. you know, it's, <laughs> some people like the salty and the sweet and some don't. Um, and obviously you and I fall on the we're, we're OK with a little bit of that mixture. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. So where are we in in the the scope of this, someone's hearing this and is like, cool, I want to see this. That's the next historic house museum I want to go to. When are they going to be able to see it? Uh, Well, you know, this has been a private foundation that's been funding this whole project. So we have completed phase 1A. Um, They did get a small grant from the state of Virginia last year, which allowed us to complete that phase. But they are back in fundraising mode for the next phase. And the next phase is the stabilization of the northeast corner. And that corner is interesting in that we have a lot of the um, a lot of the timber framing still left up there. 
the, the southwest corner was just stone and a little bit of brick. So this northeast corner is is going to let us reestablish the historic floor elevations and, and um, just have a, a kind of almost more complete kind of rooms there. So that's really where things stand right now is fundraising, 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 um, and just trying to, to get as many grants as possible and private donations. If anyone has uh, the, the altruistic bent and um, a lot of money, <laughs> they would love an angel investor to sure, come in. You probably and, can get your, your name on a pane of glass. I'm sure, that yeah. they would, I'm sure they'd consider it for the right amount of money. Um, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. so we'll put a link in the show notes so people can kind of check out this building and see how it progresses. And I know that they do have some public events out there um, as this is kind of progressing along. Right. There is still work going on out there. So the Masons are, are doing some uh, some repointing, some things to, to help stabilize uh, some of the work that's that's out there. But the major campaign in the northeast corner is is on a bit of a, a hiatus right now until we get some more funds. So um, for people listening, you know, kind of going back to that comment we made about reinventing, but not only that, but about, uh, you know, seeing diverse representation in the field, um, whether that be, um, you know, Latin representation, whether that be, um, you know, female representation in the field. I mean, you have, you know, there, there, it, is, it is difficult to kind of cut your way into this field sometimes, and it sometimes yeah. is not the most diverse field, but that's quickly changing. Um, do you have sort of recommendations for people who are interested in kind of making that jump or who maybe are like, well, I don't see myself reflected in that field. So I'm scared to kind of, to be a part of that. Um, is that an experience that you could kind of speak to or that you would give recommendations or advice? Oh, absolutely. So my favorite thing when I'm in front of a room full of, I do a lot of public speaking. I love talking to school groups and talking to young girls and young women and, I love to say to them, you know, have you ever been called bossy? Have you ever been told you talk too much? Have you ever been told you're just too much? You need to shrink yourself down. And then I say, don't do that. Come consider construction and especially historic trades because we need you. And this is a place where you can make room for yourself. The path is still not easy. The doors aren't, you know, wide open, but they're there and they're ready for you to walk right through them. And if you're someone who has that personality, you like a challenge and you like to make people listen and you like to fight for things that you think are right. And this is a great place to do it. And um, it's a job that cannot be sent overseas. It's a job that AI can't do. And it's a job that you can earn a nice living at. Um, one of the challenges of preservation in general is that a lot of the, the jobs in the field tend to be in areas that are not well remunerated. And that can be a challenge when you don't have anyone to fall back on if you are struggling for money that month. By coming into the construction side of things, we have a little bit more of that uh, financial freedom here. And I know because I, you know, coming into the field a little bit older, I didn't have mom and dad who were paying for anything for me. And so I, as lovely as it would have been to take unpaid volunteer internships and things like that, I couldn't afford to do that. And yeah, I agree. It, it can be a challenge not seeing a lot of people like you in the field. We are here. We do exist. 
Um, and we are ready and willing to meet you with open arms and bring you aboard. And I do think that there's also a big responsibility for those of us who are in the field to then bring people up with us. Yeah. So I have I have what I call my chickadees. So at work, I have other young women who are just starting out with their careers, who are maybe younger than I was when I started. You know, when you're in your 30s, you kind of stop caring what other people think and you're a lot less willing to let people push you aside. I wasn't the person in my 30s that I was in my 20s. Um, so when I have someone who's in their 20s and they're just starting their career, maybe they haven't quite gotten that sense of, you know, not letting people push them aside. I like to kind of scoop them up under my wings and take them along with me. I think that's an important, um, you know, I was asking for advice for people who are looking to break in, but I think that's important advice for people who have who have made the jump or who have broken in or who have, you know, made that career that they consider their role as well in all of that. And I think there was a little bit of advice in there for those people who are already in these careers uh, to make sure that they make space and and, and help folks out. And, um, you know, we try and use this platform to sort of uplift a variety of different voices from the field. And um, Natalie Henshaw, who is, um, you know, Preservation Maryland Powers Preserve Cast, and we have a program called the Campaign for Historic Trades. And um, Natalie Henshaw uh, runs that program. She's the director of the Historic Trades Program. And she's done some uh, trades takeovers of Preserve Cast and talked to a bunch of really cool women in the field working in historic trades. And so um, there's definitely a, a really great collection of people out there to look to and to hear from. Um, and some of them even on previous episodes here that you can kind of tune into if you're interested in this concept and this topic. I have never met a tradeswoman who isn't a fascinating, interesting, powerful, beautiful person. Um, I think our historic trades just attract people who are interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the, one of the things that can be a challenge as someone who is maybe underrepresented in the industry is to find a mentor. You know, it can be easy to find a mentor when you're surrounded by people who all look like you and talk like you and think like you. A little bit harder when there's not that many or there's only one other person in the room. Um, and for that, I would encourage that you reach out and don't limit yourself so much to the people immediately around you. Um, I definitely you know, when I started with the company, there was another female project manager, but she left shortly after I had started. And so there were no other women in project management at that time. And so I reached out to my corporate office and I said, I need a mentor who isn't a six foot tall man who yells and screams in the phone, because I guarantee you, if I try that, it's not going to work so well. And so they connected me with a project manager out of our main office. And it's been wonderful. It's been a really great relationship. And I still talk to her. Um, we have a good connection in that way, even though we never were in the same office. And I think that's really important is to to know that it's not going to be handed to you, but you can find the person to be your cheerleader and to support you and to encourage you. So um, before we go, we like to ask everybody um, what their uh, favorite historic place or site is. Um, what uh, what is currently the top of the list for you? Uh, <laughs> this is a tough one because it's like asking me to pick which of my favorite, which is my favorite nibbling. Um, I really struggled uh, to think of something. I we just bought a house, my husband and I, in um, Alexandria in the old and historic district. So that's that's a, a current favorite spot. Um, 
but I think of a generally recognized historic place. For me, it's El Morro in San Juan in Puerto Rico. Um, it's a Spanish colonial fortification. And it's not about celebrating colonialism, but it's just such a visible part of the skyline there. And it's kind of a, a shorthand that everyone uses for the city of San Juan. And it just kind of, I think for a lot of us in the Puerto Rican diaspora, it just kind of speaks of home. And so I think, I think I'm going to have to say that that's it. That's a good one and a great place to end the conversation. Um, I also love that you mentioned before that water is the enemy. And I don't think Preserve Cast has ever had a, a T-shirt, but I feel like that maybe should be our T-shirt. Water I is the it. enemy. I love it. I'll buy it. I'll wear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this has been so much fun. Looking forward to seeing where you head next and all the good stuff that you're doing at Consigli. We'll have links in the show notes to all of this if you want to learn more about Naomi and Consigli Construction. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.